Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast. In this episode, part two of Why Pope Paul VI Stood His Ground, we finish telling the story about how we got the encyclical Humani Vitae in 1968. Parents, a warning for you, please listen to this away from little ears. There's a lot of pretty serious content because it's talking in, in a lot of depth about contraception. Um, so definitely not child-friendly, but I do hope it is helpful to you in understanding the history of this document, how St. Paul VI came to his decision to issue the document that he did, and what the reaction and response has been in the years since. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. We have another special episode for you today. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And this is a part two um, episode. Part one uh, was last week. The story that we're telling in both of these episodes is why Pope Paul VI held his ground. So in July of 1968, St. Paul VI issued an encyclical letter, Humani Vitae, which defended the Church's traditional teaching on contraception, upheld it in the face of a lot of pressure and controversy to change it. In the first episode, I took us all the way back to the book of Genesis and tried to lay out for you the big points of the story leading up to the year 1930. And in this episode, what I want to do is continue from that point in 1930 and show how we got the document from St. Paul VI, as well as what the reaction was. Uh, and before I do that, though, I do want to make one note. One of our awesome fans, Stephanie, uh, sent me an email over the weekend that uh, she enjoyed the episode, but she noticed that I, I made a couple of blunders, and I just want to correct them. So I said, in discussing the story of Onan, I said that Onan was commanded to have a child with his brother's dead wife. Uh, and what I should have said and what Genesis 38 says is that Onan was commanded to have a child with his dead brother's wife. So the wife was alive, and the brother's the one that was dead. Uh, and then I also um, inadvertently, when I was discussing the Comstock laws um, in the late 1800s, I said that there were a bunch of different laws on the books in different states about contraceptive devices, information, techniques, that sort of stuff, that outlawed the use of those sorts of techniques and devices and information, or even sharing about them, for the purpose of contraception. And what I meant to say is that they were outlawed for the purpose of preventing conception. Um, so preventing conception was, was the phrase. So thanks, Stephanie. Um, for pointing those out. Thanks for listening to the entire thing and catching those mistakes. We're going to send you uh, an awesome gift, so if you can um, check your email, you should uh, have a message from us, and we want to send you a gift to thank you for that. So always something that you can uh, find um, in our podcast. If there's, if there's any little thing like that, please let us know. We want to make sure that we correct it. Now, this part two, what I want to do is, as I said, start with the year 1930, 
remember, this is the year the Anglican Church first made the change in their own practice, their own doctrine, that married couples could, under certain very discreet conditions, use contraception if they found abstinence too difficult. Um, and Pope Pius XI responded with a document, Casti Canubi, uh, rejecting that line of argumentation. Now, sort of the next watershed thing that happens with contraception um, in sort of the culture is really a push for accepting new forms of contraception, okay? So in 1930, what was being discussed was basically prophylactic methods of contraception, condoms, diaphragms, um, and those basically those two devices. In 1960, basically everything changes with the question of contraception because 1960 is when we got the first oral contraceptive hormonal uh, pill known as Inovid, you know, uh, in, the, in its FDA filings, but most people just refer to this as the pill. The pill, Inovid, was an absolute game changer in the way that contraception was dispersed, advertised, sold, culturally accepted, and it's a really, really important part of the story of getting to that 1968 moment where St. Paul VI had to decide what he was going to tell the world that wanted to know what's the Catholic Church's position on contraception in light of this changing technology that has allowed for the oral contraceptive Inovid to be developed. So what's really fascinating is the way we got to the drug Inovid, which cleared FDA approval in 1960. The research for Inovid was actually funded by uh, Catherine McCormick, um, so McCormick Spices. That's the family that funded the research for um, Inovid, for, for, for the pill. And it also in cooperation with Margaret Sanger was, was one of the funders as well. The person who really is at the center of the development of the oral contraceptive pill, Inovid, is actually a Catholic physician from Boston. And his name was Dr. John Rock. Uh, he was a lifelong Catholic, someone who took his faith very seriously, went to daily Mass for most of his life, um, and in his early practice, believe it or not, was known as the Catholic doctor that could help you if you were a Catholic couple and you um, either were infertile and wanted to conceive a child, people would say, go see John Rock, he knows how to help you um, discover what is the cause of the infertility and and solve it in many cases or he was the doctor who could help catholic married couples learn how to use the rhythm method effectively so you may remember that we've we've talked already about the use of the infertile period um during uh as a a window in which couples could have um sexual intercourse without very without much risk of pregnancy this was already a developed teaching by the early 1900s. In 1930, Pius XI discusses abstinence. Um, in 1951, actually, Pius XII gave an address to an association, of, an association of Italian midwives and said that there may be just reasons why couples might exclusively have sexual intercourse during those infertile days to space out or avoid births, maybe even for the long term, depending on what the situations were. So in John Rock's career, 
that infertile period was already a well-developed thing within churches, the church's moral teaching, that it was acceptable for married Catholic couples to use the infertile period to their advantage if they wanted to space or avoid pregnancies. So he actually was a well-known Catholic doctor who helped Catholic couples do this better. But it was his infertility treatments that kind of allowed him accidentally to discover uh, a more effective way of preventing conception. So in his studies with infertile couples, what he would often do is give the woman um, progesterone shots that would create what was called the rock rebound. So they would take progesterone, their body would um, respond as if it were pregnant, and then after they went off the progesterone, their menstrual cycle would sort of be reset. And this was called the rock rebound effect. And then after a short treatment of progesterone, many times these women were able to conceive. What happens later on in his life is he's at a medical convention. There's a friend of his, what are you doing? And he says, oh, somebody wants me to try and figure out a, you know, a pill for women to take that can, you know, help them prevent pregnancy. And John Rock said, I, I know exactly how to do that. I can help you with that, and got involved in the project. But growing up, um, he, he had some experiences as a young man that put him into contact with people. He actually did some mission work, okay? So he went to um, some, some mission countries and saw uh, poor women around the world who had a lot of children. And his own view of the situation was that they shouldn't have had so many children. And a lot of times they were Catholics and they were following the rules about not using contraception. And it always sort of bothered him that there were, you know, women around the world and children growing up in less than ideal conditions because they're trying not to break a rule that the church has. Now, he mostly respected that rule. As I told you, he was known as the Catholic doctor that could help you use the rhythm method better. But sort of as he ages, he began to look at that question of women having more children than they could support or more than they wanted or needed, especially wanted, right? And, and he sees it differently. So it's not just like an unfortunate coincidence. It's this is something that the church really needs to change their position on. And another part that comes in is he began to sort of buy into the overpopulation um, pandemonia that was kind of popular um, in, in the mid-20th century. And this led to some struggles with his Catholicism. As I said, he, he was a, a daily mass goer for a very long time, but he began struggling with some aspects of his Catholic faith in light of his personal views and his professional competency in the area of um, fertility. And avoiding pregnancy, he thought, was something that Catholics needed better tools to be able to do. And he thought one important part of his career was to help married couples, married Catholic couples, enjoy their sexual lives, but not live in fear of pregnancy. So even when you're not talking about third world situations where there's just too many children, they're too numerous— even in, you know, developed uh, America, I mean, he lived in Boston, he wasn't working probably with that many poor people, he thought that Catholics were just, you know, afraid of getting pregnant all the time, and that there ought to be a way to sort of let them enjoy, let married couples enjoy a more natural sexual uh, intimacy where they're not 
always thinking about, is this going to lead to a pregnancy? Can we afford a baby? Are we at the right time of the month? He thought that some of that just kind of needed to go. And so what happens is he begins to advocate that different forms of contraception, like the pill, are actually more natural than other types of contraception. So, for instance, condoms, he would say, are not very natural. It often means that in the middle of a sort of passionate moment, the man has to go and, and you know, use a condom and then, you know, go. so he actually uses this phrase of like, the husband has to go to the bathroom uh, and step on the cold floor and put on a condom and then come back to the bedroom and that that's unnatural. Uh, he also said, you know, checking temperatures and looking at your calendar is not an, is not a natural thing that like that that would interrupt the natural intimacy that ought to exist between husband and wife. And taking a pill allows couples to have sex and not have to think about pregnancy, not have to interfere with the act as it's happening. And he began to be convinced that this was really the most natural way of pre- of preventing pregnancy but still allowing couples to have a good um, healthy sexual life right now this of course goes against the teachings of the church and so what began as sort of a private research initiative became a rather public battle um, dr rock became the public face that was known as a catholic doctor and that's a big part of it I'm telling the church, I'm saying it's time for this teaching to change. And he actually wrote a book called The Time Has Come. Um, I think his subtitle is something like A Catholic Doctor Tells His Story. Very, very, very well known. Uh, always, he's always interviewed by the, the nation's media, major media publications at the time. And it was a big deal that he was leading the research behind Inovid. Um, this progesterone pill made the body mimic pregnancy. Um, and he felt that this was the right thing that needed to happen. So the technological, just to you know, kind of step back for a second, the technological developments in medicine that led to the progesterone pill, Anovid, which really spearheaded a sexual revolution that changed the culture's values, changed the way that people thought about sex and thought about contraception, that was being, you know, uh, manufactured by a lifelong daily mass-going Catholic, which is a very difficult thing. Uh, Dr. Rock died in 1984, sort of not reconciled with the church. He was not—he never really thought that things went right. For him, he thought it was inevitable the church would say, contraception's okay, or at least oral contraceptives contraceptives are okay, and it never really happened. Um, But that's— John Rock played such a big role in getting the hormonal contraceptive on the market uh, that it's really worth making sure that you know that. Now, this is happening, you know, late 50s is the development, 57 to 60, 60 FDA approval is granted for Inovid. And what happens shortly thereafter, we have the Second Vatican Council. So, You don't have to be a scholar of religion to know that Vatican II, that met from 1962 to 1965, 
changed a lot of things for Catholics. The liturgy looked very different after the Second Vatican Council. The way that, you know, nuns and, and even priests dressed looked very different. Lots of things seemed to be changing during that council, and it was the time of change. It was a cultural season of change in, in all sorts of ways. And for a lot of people that were not on the inside reading the documents of Vatican II, you just had the sense that everything was up for grabs. Anything could change. This, when it came to the issue of contraception, really created some expectation on the part of many faithful Catholics that when the council is done, we're going to have a new rule on contraception. And in fact, that was being taught, uh, as we'll see here in, in a little bit, in a lot of seminaries. So how did that happen? Well, part of it is the big cultural sea change made possible by Inovid, by Dr. John Rock. The other part is that one of the documents of Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, has a section on marriage and family. And in uh, paragraph 51 of Gaudium et Spes, there's a discussion about contraception. This is, again, paragraph 51 of Gaudium et Spes. I'm not going to read to you the entire paragraph because it's quite long, but there's a note here that based on the nature of the human person and his acts, these acts preserve the full sense of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love. Such a goal of giving the full self cannot be achieved unless the virtue of conjugal chastity is sincerely practiced. Relying on these principles, sons of the church may not undertake methods of birth control which are found blameworthy by the teaching authority of the church in its unfolding of the divine law. That's a somewhat strong statement, but there's a footnote. The footnote of that document, Gaudium et Spes, says that, this is the quote, certain questions which need further and more careful investigation have been handed over at the command of the Supreme Pontiff to a commission for the study of population, family, and births, in order that after it fulfills its function, the Supreme Pontiff may pass judgment. With the doctrine of the magisterium in this state, this holy synod does not intend to propose immediately concrete solutions. Now, think to yourself, you're a Catholic living in the 60s, and you hear the Church is saying there are new questions that need to be studied more, and we don't want to make the final judgment at this moment. There's a group that is going to handle that. Well, what would that sound like, right? I mean, it would sound a lot like the Council of the Lam the Lambeth Conference in the 1930s, or just the fact that everybody seemed to be changing their minds about contraception during this time. This is one of the most important parts of the story of how we got the document Humani Vitae in 1968. So there was a commission set up by St. John the Twenty-Third, and then continued and expanded by St. Paul the Sixth. The official title of the commission is the Papal Commission on Problems of the Family, Population, and Natality. It began its work in 1963, and at the beginning of this commission, the group consisted of something like seven or eight people. It was very small. Uh, over time, 
it would expand in membership to to include over 60 people on the commission. There were ecclesiastical uh, members of the committee, so there were bishops and cardinals. There were experts in theology invited to give their opinions. There were also lay members, um, people who were sociologists and studied, for instance, the population question. There were doctors, psychologists, and even a lay married couple who were invited not to give expert witness as doctors or sociologists or you know some other profession, but to give a witness to this commission as married couples. So it's Patrick and Patricia Crowley who at the time in the 60s, they were at the heads of an international organization whose purpose was to strengthen Catholic marriages, right? They went around doing retreats, and they had publications in an organization that they ran, and they were brought into this commission to give the commission the witness and feedback of a married couple who has to live with the teaching on contraception in a way that members of the clergy typically don't have to deal, right? They don't have to worry about it. What happened is this commission met in secret for a couple of years, and especially as it expanded to include more members, uh, they began to have more honest and open conversations. Uh, Patricia Crowley and, and Patrick Crowley note that at the beginning, it felt like the only thing they could do was talk about Casti Canubi, which said you can't use contraception, and they didn't really understand what the purpose of these meetings was. As it expanded more viewpoints were rep- were presented, and the Crowleys were able to share the witness of their own ministry working with married couples. So they had thousands of letters that they collected that kind of shared the stories of Catholic families struggling with following the teaching on contraception. So here is one example from one of these letters. A father of six wrote, rhythm, the, the rhythm method, destroys the meaning of the sex act as it turns it from a spontaneous expression of spiritual and physical love into a mere bodily relief. It makes me obsessed with sex throughout the month. It endangers my chastity. It has a noticeable effect on my disposition. It makes necessary my complete avoidance of all affection toward my wife for three weeks at a time. It seems to be immoral and deeply unnatural. It seems to me diabolical. And here's uh, a mother's uh, response. A mother who used both the basal temperature and calendar method said, I find myself sullen and resentful of my husband when the time for sexual relation finally arrives. I resent his necessarily guarded affection during the whole month and find that I cannot respond suddenly. I also find that my subconscious dreams and unguarded thoughts are inevitably sexual. All this in spite of a generally beautiful marriage. And there are other uh, letters that they received talking about the difficulty of having so many children, one after another, and never wondering when, and and never knowing when that was going to end. How many children are we going to have? How difficult and fragile is our our marriage going to be because we've got six or seven kids? So the Crowleys presented a strong case that it was difficult and maybe overly burdensome on families to refrain from any of the modern forms of contraception. But they especially latched on to this idea that the the contraceptive pill, Inovid, was somehow morally different. So at the end of a few years of meeting, what this commission did is they submitted a report to St. Paul VI. 
issuing their judgment on what he ought to do. What should he say about this question of contraception that was being renewed in light of the technology, the change in the development of the oral contraceptive? In the majority report, which almost all of the commission members signed off on, is something like seven or eight people did not sign it, but everybody else did. So far majority wanted the Pope to essentially say, there's something different about the oral contraceptive pill, and we ought to allow couples to use that. And one of the big arguments that they made in this report that was sent to the Pope was that couples ought to be able to use contraception as long as they still maintain an overall openness toward welcoming children in the course of, of their marriage, but that it's an overreach to say every sexual act must be open to conception. The minority report issued by that small group of people basically said Pius XI's language is so strong that no matter what our experience is, we can't change the law. It, it, was, it is an intrinsic evil, and we can't change it just because we don't like it. The Crowley family, in particular, argued that there wasn't any good reason to tell serious committed Catholics that they need to stop using or avoid using contraception. She thought concerns about, oh, well, if we let couples use contraception, they're going to be, they're going to start doing so in a selfish manner. They're not going to want to have any children. She thought that that was a bad argument because these were families that she was hearing from who already had five, six kids and didn't know what to do with themselves. She said, these families are committed to the church. They care about Christian principles, and they're not going to be selfish and lazy. And remember, if you saw part one, the Lambeth Commission uh, or conference indicated in their resolution that couples could use contraception provided that it did not proceed from a, met, from a motivation of selfishness or laziness. That same kind of conversation is happening in Catholic settings at this time. So what really gets things moving in a very interesting way is this, this majority report, which again said essentially there needs to be an opening of this door. We don't need to just say contraception is totally fine, anybody can do whatever they want, but it did say couples ought to be able to use methods of contraception that they consider to be agreeable and humane, and that, in, that certainly could include the oral contraceptives, but maybe even included others. That was the official recommendation that the majority group sent to Paul VI, landed on his desk in 1967. Here you go. Here's what we think you should do. Interesting and notable, the future Pope John Paul II, Karol Wojtyla, was not allowed by the Polish government to attend the final meeting of this population commission, and so he wasn't able to be there for the debates on the final document. He actually sent his own minority report um, by mail because the Polish government wouldn't let him out uh, to go to Rome at that time for whatever reason. But the minority report, uh, you know, strongly contested all of the points of the majority report. And all that would have been interesting enough. But the majority report was leaked to the press in 1967. 
It was printed in uh, the UK in the uh, the Tablet or the Catholic Herald, I forget which one. And that publication of a body of people specifically appointed by John the Twenty Third to address this question circulated for about a year before we got Humanae Vitae. And so, especially from 1967 to 1968, it was the experience of many, many Catholics that, in light of the footnote from Gaudium et Spes that said, we're going to decide this later, this matter later, in light of the majority report, which strongly indicated that the Church should change its position, it was experience of many Catholics that they were told by their priests that some priests were told in the seminary, that some bishops were proclaiming, this is going to change. The rule is going to change, so don't worry about it. It's coming. And that went on for about a year before we finally got the document from Paul VI in 1968. One more Part of the puzzle here that I'll, I'll, I won't spend too much time on, but it is is fascinating, before we really talk about the document itself, is legally in the United States, contraception was approved in limited cases in 1965. So all the way till 1965, some states still had these Comstock laws on the book. Uh, they were not allowing contraceptive devices or medicines, or information to be sold for the purpose of preventing conception, only if you're trying to cure a medical ailment. So the state of Connecticut, it was Connecticut versus Griswold, 1965. The state tried to argue that there were legitimate reasons to prevent contraception from being publicly available, and eventually the court said, you can't do that. You have to let married couples use contraceptive contraceptives that they want and for the explicit purpose of preventing uh, the birth of children. And they used in their arguments the, the, the court's response to Griswold versus Connecticut indicated that there was something called this right of privacy that would later be the foundation that would be used in arguing Roe v. Wade and a handful of other cases all related to sexual morality issues. And so if, if you're familiar with Roe v. Wade especially or other similar sorts of cases that talk about the importance of the right to privacy, that actually came from the Griswold versus Connecticut case on contraception. So initially, legally, married couples need to be able to have access to contraception with no questions. Then single people also need that, and the right to privacy continued to justify other decisions down the road. So <laughs> by 1968, Paul VI is sitting there with a world that had been using contraception for the, the oral contraceptive for eight years, came out in, you know, 1960, millions and tens of millions of people using this drug regularly, finding it to be effective, finding it to be easier than other methods that they had been using, and just singing its praises. There's a cultural revolution happening. The sexual revolution is very much in sway by 1968. Uh, there are legal changes happening, making contraception more socially uh, acceptable. Even in the reaction to Griswold versus Connecticut, Catholic bishops and cardinals in the United States of America 
issued letters saying that we basically have to let people do this because it is a um, it's something separate from religion, right? We can't enforce our religion in law. So there's all this weight on the Pope, and finally he reacts. He issues Humani Vitae on human life in July of 1968. And after all of this speculation, many people thought, okay, here it is, here's the document. We know what it's going to say. It's going to say this is okay. He's going to follow the recommendation of the majority committee. But he didn't. And it is a it is something that was just utterly stunning at the time. Still, I think when you kind of put together all the stuff we've kind of laid out, I've tried to lay out here for you in these, you know, these these episodes, the weight that must have been on his shoulders to just go ahead and say it's okay. I can't imagine what that was like. And to act against the commission that provided this majority report because he thought that it was wrong. The letter was so inflammatory um, that it is, without any question, the most rejected encyclical in the history of the Catholic Church. Pope Paul VI would be the Pope for 10 more years, and he never issued another encyclical in his life. There were certainly other issues that were important to him, and he wrote letters about things, but he never issued another encyclical after the experience of Humani Vitae. So what happened when Humani Vitae was released is within a day or so, there was a letter taken out, a, a full-page ad taken out in the New York Times uh, written by a group of theologians from the Catholic University of America telling Catholics that they could in good conscience reject the teachings of that encyclical and follow their own conscience when making decisions about how to, uh, what sort of contraceptive uh, methods to use in their marriage. Uh, the spearheader, the, the, the person, sorry, the person who spearheaded this campaign uh, was Father Charles Curran. He was a moral theology professor at the Catholic University of America, and um, he really became famous for this. He, he held a press conference kind of reacting paragraph by paragraph to the document. They put together a statement, put out a press release, and they got hundreds and hundreds of theologians these are mostly priests and people with doctorates in theology. There weren't really many people with doctorates in theology in 1968 that weren't ordained. I think something like 675 signatories to this letter within a couple of months. Uh, and so what we got for the first time as a result of this encyclical was people who wanted to say, I am Catholic, and yet I'm going to reject what the Church is saying— these are my reasons. I'm not going anywhere. Of course, there's always been people who have rejected what the church taught, but oftentimes that would lead to some sort of schism. They'd go somewhere else, found their own thing. Here were, you know, well-educated seminary professors, many of them, saying, if you're a Catholic, you don't have to listen to that. Here's the reasons why. And there was a series of five or six points that they made and in this like one or two page letter and it really sent shockwaves through because there were all these people expecting a change pope paul the sixth comes out and does not change the rule and we'll talk about the encyclical itself here in a second but just really you, you got to know like the immediate reaction against this letter people were unhappy with it and were following the advice of catholics who were 
given a public voice saying you don't have to do it. You don't have to listen to what this document says. Really, really shocking time for the church. Um, Charles Curran eventually would be ousted from his role at Catholic University of America and, and forbidden from teaching Catholic theology. Um, as far as I know, he is still a priest. Uh, he was a member of the Jesuit order. I actually met him once. Uh, he came to Tallahassee when I was in my PhD program, and I got to sit down and talk with him for a while and kind of p- poke his, you know, pick his brain a little bit, but uh, he still basically believes he was he was right. So what does the document itself say? It might surprise you that this document, Humanae Vitae, that we're making such a big deal about, um, you know, here at the Institute, uh, and that has caused such controversy. George Weigel says it's the most controversial encyclical ever written. It's only something like 12 or 13 pages long. Uh, it is not an incredibly long document, but what Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI, did in that document is first uphold the traditional teaching, but also react to some of the sort of newer questions in a way that tries to balance the experiences and difficulties that people were having at the time with the constant tradition of the church. And he opens the letter uh, on, on human life with this phrase that says that parents become co-creators with God when they enter into parenthood. That having a child is not merely a human thing. It's not just something that two people did. God's involved because God is the author of life. So one of the things that shapes Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI's arguments throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire document is this notion that what happens in our sexual life, in our sexual expressions of intimacy with, within a marriage, is not merely a human thing. It's also caught up in the divine law, that there are two orders that we have to think of when we make our deliberations and discernments about children and marriage. There's our own experience, our natural desires, our human will, and there's the divine will. He also notes in paragraph 6 that we received the majority report, right? But he says this, However, the conclusions arrived at by the commission could not be considered by us as definitive and absolutely uh, certain, dispensing us from the duty of examining personally this serious question. This was all the more necessary because within the commission itself there was not complete agreement. And so he says, Now we have sifted carefully the evidence sent to us and intently studied the whole matter, as well as prayed constantly to God. So we, by the virtue of the mandate entrusted to us by Christ, intend to give our reply to the series of questions that were raised by that report, by that group. Interestingly, the rumor is that Paul VI was found constantly studying a book by a Polish prelate at the time when he was preparing to write Humanae Vitae, something called uh, Love and Responsibility. Um, so, anyhow, he he admits in the letter, yeah, I didn't listen to the majority report, but here's the things that we need to remember. So, one of the things, as I said, is that 
Procreation is not just a matter of sexual activity, but it's also a divine activity. This is a theme that runs through the entire encyclical. He calls parents co-creators with God, um, and he says, and this is a big thing in the 60s too, there are some ways that human beings are called to shape and change the natural world because they're stewards with God, right? They have a certain authority over creation. I mean, think what was happening in, in, in the 60s. Space flight was happening, right? We were starting to, to as, as a species, be able to travel outside of our planet. In 1969, we land on the moon. I mean, that's a huge conquering of nature. One of the interesting lines of argument in, in Humanae Vitae is that we have to remember, Paul VI says, that even though we have these great powers over the created world, there are some things that we can't shape and change to suit our own desires. And the sexual sphere, the, the, the sphere of sexual ethics, is not one of those kinds of places where by our craftiness and industriousness, we can change the laws. Um, so that is sort of his way of saying, like, yeah, we can't just because we have a new pill or a new way of doing contraception, it doesn't mean that we've changed it to where now contraception is a good thing. Um, he says that there are important newer views about sexuality, uh, that sex is not only about procreation, but also about the love of spouses. And look, that's a very significant development for Catholic theology to publicly and officially teach that the sexual union of spouses is not just about procreation or education of offspring, but also about the love and union of the spouses. This is something that's actually in Gaudium et Spes. There's Dietrich von Hildebrand and Herbert Doms, are two theologians who, who wrote about this in the, the 40s and 50s. Paul VI gives very strong voice to this, that yes, there is a unitive dimension of the sexual act. Sex is supposed to unite spouses in a one flesh union and deepen their bond of love between one another, between husband and wife. And it's supposed to be open to the gift of children. Another point here that I think really is, is worth stressing about Humanae Vitae is that he looks for an integral approach to human life where we don't just evaluate what we're going to do by looking at biology or physiology or psychology, demographics, other sciences. Yeah, we look at those things, and we should. But we also are called to remember the supernatural and eternal dimensions of our vocation. So, for instance, in Popolorum Progressio of 1963, um, or is it, ah, I forget the year on Progressio, 67, I think, um, he's talking about integral human development, and he's, it's a Catholic social teaching document. He's talking about developing poor societies, and he says what's important is not just that we enable them to have material success, but that we also attend to their spiritual needs. He takes that same sort of evaluation to the sexual sphere and says it's not just about, for instance, how much money we have or you know how tired we are, but also the calling of God on our lives and the tremendous blessing that he's calling us perhaps to share with, with more children, or if there is a reason to avoid childbirth, to space out a pregnancy, that we do not frustrate and thwart the sexual act from its intended purpose, from its, from its end, from its telos. 
Um, he uses and develops this, this concept of conjugal love, which he says is an act of the will, not just of the body. And it is, and he defines conjugal love as total, faithful, and fruitful. And basically, he wants to say if if we make the sexual act not total, that's no good. If it's not faithful, if there's infidelity, right? That's not good. If it's not fruitful, that's not good. It needs to be all of these things at the same time, even acknowledging that not every act of sex is going to lead to childbirth. We have to maintain that natural ordering. Um, any develops this theme of responsible parenthood. He says parents do have responsibilities to plan in some sort of way, think, discern, pray, not just haphazardly have children, have some sort of discernment process, be aware of the the way that their body is functioning, and have some willpower over our instincts and passions, that there should be prudence and that there should always be this recognizing that parents have a duty to God. In paragraphs 11 and 12 of the document, though, Paul VI reaffirms in very strong language that the church rejects contraception. So he says in paragraph 11, the church nevertheless in urging men to the observance of the precepts of the natural law, which it interprets by its constant doctrine, teaches that each and every marital act must of necessity retain its intrinsic relationship to the procreation of human life. He also says, again, he develops a unitive and procreative dimension to sex. This is an important part of the document. We can no more separate the procreative dimension from sex, like by contraception, than we can the unitive dimension of sex. So for sex in a marriage, if it's not unitive, right, if it's being forced Right, if it's if it's marital rape, Paul VI would say that's terrible. That's bad. You can't do that. You also can't remove the procreative dimension. That only when both are in place do you have a truly authentic act of love. Um, so what he says people should do is resort to chastity, develop an awareness of the. Uh, fertile and infertile days. And something really important he calls for scientists and doctors to help develop a better awareness of when the fertile days and infertile days are, to make that easier. But at the same time, he challenges couples to develop self-mastery, to embrace a form of married chastity, which is going to mean sometimes refraining from sexual union, maybe even at those times when they most desire it, because they've discerned, they have responsible parenthood, that this is not a good time to conceive another child. I attended an academic conference, uh, well, a couple of them, but but one in 2016 on Humani Vitae. It was just a whole weekend just listening to academics present papers about Humani Vitae. It was awesome for me. I love that kind of thing. And one of the professors was, it was a philosophy professor at Ave Maria University, and I remember her presentation. She said that many people make the sort of easy argument that she thinks it's a bad argument, but, oh, well, if couples can use the infertile days, isn't that just another form of contraception? And she's she was a, a philosopher of uh, action theory. She, knew, she knows action theory. And she said that's overlooking significant difference, right? If you use contraception, 
whatever form, prophylactic methods, hormonal uh, implants, or whatever it is, what that means is you get to have sexual intercourse and not have children. You're still doing, you're still committing the sexual act, right? You're having sexual intercourse, but you don't have children as a result. There's no pregnancy. And she said, using natural family planning, the, you're, you know, taking advantage of the infertile days, is not having sex whenever you want and not having to worry about a pregnancy. It's purposefully not having sex on those days when pregnancy is likely to occur and having sex, if you want, on the days when it's unlikely. So you, you still avoid you don't have sex. You abstain. And the way that she put it, I'll never forget, and hopefully you'll remember it as well. There's a big difference between using contraception and having sex whenever you want versus playing Scrabble several nights on the, a month when it's not a good idea to conceive, right? That that is a different, it's an entirely different universe where your will is having to be strengthened, where you have to exercise what Paul VI calls self-mastery. So he does uh, argue that the recourse to the temporary, ab- temporary abstinence is licit, um, but he also calls couples to a development of self-mastery. And he says that this, this actual temporary continence, temporary abstinence, allows the man and the woman to find other ways to nurture their relationship, and, and I think that's one of the biggest benefits of this is that you have to as one professor said, play Scrabble or do something else, right? You can bond as a couple, but in a different sort of way. At the end of the document, Paul VI calls for priests and bishops to uphold this teaching and asks married couples to support one another in addition to asking doctors and scientists to help develop a better understanding of the cycle. Well, what happens after the document is, as I mentioned a second ago, widespread rejection um, there was uh, the, the letter sent out by Father Curran and signed by some 650, 700 theologians. But in terms of church history, I mean, we're 50, 50 some odd years removed now from the document. It hasn't gone away. Pope John Paul II was a very strong advocate for the teaching of Humanae Vitae, for the importance of trying to form Catholics to know that contraception is a violation of the natural law and of the divine law, and that there are other ways to space your births. Pope Francis, right, who the media loves to sort of paint Pope Francis as this liberal figure who's trying to remove some of the sort of, um, you know, retrograde ideas that have crept in and kind of let, let people have more liberation. He's spoken very strongly many, many times in support of the teaching on contraception. And it's, so it's sort of, it's not just a miracle in my, in my view that we got this document, Humanae Vitae, from Paul VI in 1968, all of the factors that were at work in making, giving him all kinds of reasons to do something else, but it's also that it has continued. It has continued to be repeated time and time and time again in different contexts by the different popes that we've had. So John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Pope Francis have all been very strong advocates for Paul VI's arguments uh, that are laid out in Humanae Vitae. 
John Paul II spent an enormous amount of time developing and defending these this teaching in his Theology of the Body, a third of which is essentially a defense of Humanae Vitae. There have been faithful Catholic theologians who have really put their name and career in the service of teaching this doctrine. So, for instance, Dr. Janet Smith, who is on the board of the St. Philip Institute, um, has published widely and spoken to millions of people uh, about this issue. Um, there are scholars like Germaine Griset, John Finnis, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, Paul Quay, um, others uh, at Catholic University of America, Dr. John Grabowski. Interestingly, Charles Kern, Father Charles Kern, was at Catholic University of America, CUA. He was ousted from there over over this issue that, that resulted in him being banned from being able to teach Catholic theology. And then Catholic University hired Dr. John Grabowski, who has become one of the leading scholars in favor of defending the Church's teachings, so much so that during the year of the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, back in 2018, there was a major conference on the... the campus of Catholic University of America in support of this document, which, I mean, you could never have pictured that in 1968, CUA would become the ground for defending uh, Humanae Vitae. They also, uh, Dr. Dr. Janet Smith and Dr. Uh, John Grabowski, uh, issued um, uh, with, with others a, a letter in defense of the, doc- of the doctrine that was signed by more than 700 scholars. So there is some real miraculous sorts of things at work here when you look at the 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 way that this could have gone differently um there's there's lots of books to that, that you could read on this question um but one that that I would recommend if 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 this big story I've told is is interesting to you some I think one book you would really like that that does something similar but with with a, a very different sort of angle is called Adam and Eve after the pill Adam and Eve after the pill Great book. The author there takes you through basically what she lays out at the beginning is that we could never have imagined a society where smoking would be nearly erased from existence. Now people still smoke, but you can't there's you can't do it almost anywhere. Can't do it in restaurants, some bars even. Um, it's just not it just doesn't happen in public like it used to. Smoking was numerically more popular, but also the, the spaces that it invaded. It was everywhere. And now we're a society that looks at smoking like, how could we have ever thought that? And she kind of uh, outlines this case in which it could happen for contraception also. And there's there's signs of hope. So I, I hope, look, I hope that you've enjoyed these couple of episodes. Um, this is a subject that I'm really passionate about and that I have spent a lot of time in classrooms teaching about. So I hope that you've gotten a good feel for sort of the big pieces of this story. Um, please uh, send us your comments and, and feedback. If there's more questions like this you would like us to address or different documents or stories you want somebody to tell you, uh, I like telling stories, so I'm happy to do that. And anything that, uh, any future topics or, or questions, please send us an email at podcast at stphilipinstitute.org, and we'd be happy to, um, to see if we can do another show on these sorts of topics. So thank you so much for your time, and God bless you.